While many dentists get out of dental school and jump right into work, others end up years into a practice and feel like they're chained to their chair or spinning their wheels. At Duckett Lad, we've discovered that there are six phases of long-term practice success. On this podcast, we'll explore each phase of success and help you on your growth journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Dental Momentum Podcast powered by Duckett Ladd Dental CPAs and Advisors. Jared Duckett back at you with my business partner, Bill Ladd. And Bill, what is going on, buddy? Hey, I'm doing really good, Jared. It's good to be on here. It's good to uh, tell some stories again. Uh, I think we got a great podcast lined up today. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I agree. I'm stoked about this podcast. You know, we were, this was a couple weeks ago, you know, here internally, our leadership team, we were talking about the uh, 10x concept, right? Yeah. Uh, how about you can really 10x something and kind of really take it to the next level. And as we kind of dive in today with our guests, that 10x concept, you're going to kind of see it's going to come up, you know, from where they started to where they are now. Um, it's really cool just to see how they 10x and really grown, grown the dental practice. So I'm, I'm excited. Ready to dive in? Yeah, let's go. All right. Well, guys, I just want to introduce you guys to Dr. Scott and Kelly Fisher with Henderson, or excuse me, Fisher Family Dentistry out of Hendersonville, Tennessee. Scott, Kelly, appreciate you having us. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Well, Glad to be here. And, and I see you guys aren't, uh, you guys are, are on the beach, right? Is that what you just said? You're living yeah. the dream, right? We're trying our best. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you jumping on here. I mean, we were talking a couple, I guess a month ago, Scott, you and I were just really talking about, you know, where you guys have come from, what you've created really, you know, in your practice. And I thought it'd just be really cool today. And Bill, we were talking just to kind of unpack your journey. You know, we're big on the dental momentum journey, yeah. you know, about where you started, where you are now. So I'm just going to kind of throw it to you guys at the beginning and Scott Kelly, just jump in. Let's go back. Let's go back before you have your practice. Let's go back to dental school a little bit. Talk about that. How, what that looked like and then getting out, what happened from there. And we'll just really start unpacking the whole journey here. So um, I'll just throw it to you, Scott or Kelly. Where did, where did dental school start? Love of dentistry come from? Let's dive in. We both uh, grew up in Kentucky and ended up going to University of Kentucky Dental School together. Um, we met there, dated, decided we were going to get married and had to decide where to go, what to do. At the time in Kentucky, there's less population than Tennessee, and there's just two dental schools. And mostly, once we decided we were going to practice together, we had to find a place that would hold two people somewhat. So we started looking around. I grew up just north of Nashville, so we decided we'd look in the Nashville area since I knew that fairly well. And we ended up finding a practice of a guy who was, I think it was a seven year, he'd been in, he'd been practicing it seven years, but he was going to go back to specialize in endodontics. So it was a younger practice growing a little bit, but not anywhere close enough to support two people. So, so kind of jumping back to that decision right off the bat, were you in dental school when you thought had the thought that you actually wanted to own your practice, that that was the right move uh, right off the bat, like right out of school that you wanted to own a practice? Or how did you kind of come to that conclusion? Yeah, we always just thought of that sink or swim. We were just going to do it. Yeah. My dad ran a pretty large company. And the one thing he always told me is whatever you do, find a job that you can work for yourself. So that was ingrained in you from an early, early yeah, age. I always wanted to be my own boss. So, so Kelly, what about you? Did that, was that appealing to you? Did that make you nervous? I mean, that decision, that's a big, that's a pretty big decision. That's a pretty big swing. It is a big decision, but I, again, I grew up in kind of the same environment, only family owned businesses. And my parents kind of instilled that same thing in us is control your own destiny. Yeah. Don't work for someone else, work for yourself. Um, I grew up in Eastern Kentucky in a very rural area, really didn't have a desire to go back there at that time. Um, so, you know, the move to a bigger city more to offer was appealing, but also quite scary when you are starting a business that, you know, the income isn't there right away to, to make both of you survive. So those were the lean years, but they were the years that 
built some good memories and and taught us a lot. So it sounds like you never thought twice about going and working for somebody else. In dental school, you were like, hey, I'm not thinking about where I'm going to work. I'm thinking about what I'm going to go purchase or start up, right? Yeah, like in 1990, though, the, there was no real corporations to go work for. Sure, that's a great point. Yeah, A lot of people didn't um, hire a lot of associates. I mean, there were some, but most of the people like we went to school with either few of them got associates, but most of them either went in the military or floundered on their own. Yeah. So when you kind of look back at that at that time period, uh, going through school, did you guys incur uh, student loans or did you have loans coming out of dental school that were kind of a consideration or or did you were you guys able to somehow kind of come out relatively unscathed on that side? We were relatively unscathed. We both did have some loans, but yeah. not to the extent people do today. Yeah. And both of our parents helped us out and we were, we were very fortunate there. So we'll, we'll continue on the journey, but I think it's a question I would ask you guys now as you're talking to younger dentists, and I know you guys like to talk and teach and mentor younger dentists. How, how would you look at, do you feel like you would look at this differently now under the current environment as far as ownership or do you feel like it's still a very viable option under the right circumstances? I think it's still viable to go on your own. It definitely would be a bit more challenging just yeah. because of the debt load that a lot of people come out with. And I, I certainly understand that that field to, to jump into an associateship or a corporate where they're dangling those dollars and get that debt paid off. I, I understand that, but sometimes you have to look at the bigger picture. Sure. Mm. I would still probably do it, but you got to remember, you can't just get out of school and go start living like a doctor. You can't go mm. buy a place in Seaside. Mm. <laughs> you got to live listen to that. Keep pointing. You got to live way under your means if you're going to do that. And that kind of feeds right in, Kelly, what you were saying is kind of the linear. So tell us uh, about the actual acquisition itself, you know, kind of what, what that looked like. You say it was a maybe a younger practice. I'm guessing the collections were somewhat modest. Tell us about the actual acquisition and then kind of those lean years, what, what did those look like? If I, if I remember right, I think the collections were about 150,000 at that point. Mm. And, you know, I was looking through my numbers. I am a numbers geek and I was trying to see what, when y'all talked about doing this, you know, where were we, what did we do? It was amazing to me that during those early years, collections and production were, you know, almost 100%. Mm. Whereas today, when you get into the insurance environment, you don't get that anymore. Mm. So that was one interesting fact that came up, came out of it. But I think you've just got to take your time, do the right thing, build it slowly. Um, like Scott said, you can't overspend. You've got to make wise choices. There's lots of people trying to sell you everything in the world. You've got to look at your return on investment. And that's what we did in the early years after we bought it. You know, everybody wanted us to buy the, the big shiny object, but if it wasn't going to make money for us, we didn't buy mm. it. Mm -hmm. and, you know, just things like that, just being cautious. So you said- when you... We did buy the practice. I, I worked with the dentist for about six months um, in kind of a transition period while he was finishing some school up in Lexington. So. Um, that helped to be introduced to the, the patients, helped me learn a little bit about running an office. But, you know, six months is not a long time to, to learn how to run a business, and they no. don't teach us that. Right. So you said about 150000 in collections. <laughs> how many team members? What do the team members look like overall? I mean, you had the owning dentist, but whom else? We had uh, one assistant that we shared, uh, one hygienist, and one front office. And then it quickly became apparent that we didn't, I mean, you needed a hygienist, but with two dentists, one of us was never doing much. So you didn't really need a hygienist. So we gave her time to find another, we didn't fire her, but we told her, we're not going to need you. We gave her time to find another job. And then when she found it, we became hygienists. Mm. One of us was doing dentistry. The other was doing hygiene. 
But in hindsight, that was actually, we really got to know these patients, got to, instead of just coming in and checking them and all this. So we built our name and our brand doing hygiene. Yeah, so, so, so Kelly, you that, were, go ahead, Bill. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. So kind of looking at the numbers there, when you were looking at that, the hygienist, just from an overhead perspective, is what you're saying, it just didn't make sense in the model that you guys had. When one of us is sitting in a chair in the office doing nothing at the moment, and we were paying her, I don't know, probably $40,000 a year. Yeah. I might as well keep the 40 and do it myself. You guys were the plug, right? And you pay her, that comes out of something. That's yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Kelly, you worked with the, the seller dentist for six months. And then Scott came in and, and the seller dentist hopped out. Is that what, what worked? We, it's kind of a, a funny story. We got married the last week of June, got back from our honeymoon on, I think, July the 1st or something. And July the 2nd, we took ownership of that practice, moved to a new city. <laughs> oh, no, no, not many changes there. Yeah. Wow. Did you buy the real estate of that practice as well? No, it was, a, it was in a little strip center. Okay. Spot. And is this in the city that you guys are in now, in the Henderson? Yeah. Henderson. So now, knowing a little bit about that area, that whole area is just exploding and has been for years. But back then, was it was it the same way? Was it a really growing community or what was it? No. No. It was a sleepy little bedtown community because to get to, most of the people worked in Nashville, but to get there, there was not a good, road system they hadn't built the the commuter interstate yet or any of that so yeah so what was the population to a degree at that time give or take of that city? I have 30,000 30,000 now it's almost 70 yeah so as you kind of look at that do you kind of look back in hindsight that that was one of those luck events that you were in a community or, or did you see this did you envision that eventually that's going to become a huge part of Nashville, Nashville. Going to grow but not like it is now yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's location. You get a great location, right? And I think it was, I want to say nine years in, I guess we purchased a lot, built our own building and took a bit of a gamble at that time on some information we did have that we were building our office on what was to become the thoroughfare through that town. So at the time we built our office, it was us and a, a tire store and you had to, we were at the dead end of a street and you had to turn or, you know, make a U-turn to even get in our office. Now that is definitely the busiest street in the city and it's huh. major thoroughfare place to be. That's one of those, you had a little insight, but you got lucky in the end that it came to fruition. So, so kind of talking through that, you know, from that acquisition to, like you said, nine years in is when you kind of bought that land and built I'm, I'm guessing you kind of had a transitory period where maybe at first it was probably pretty lean, but I'm guessing over time the profitability started increasing or kind of walk us through your profitability journey and, and cash flow journey from those lean years till you got to the point where you could afford to go out and buy that building and, or buy the land and build a building. I think it probably took us about seven, eight years to feel like we were going to make it, I guess. The first five were hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you well, say that legitimately, did you, I mean, it was that internally as an entrepreneurial with a spirit, you kind of worry about, Hey, I'm either going to crush it or I'm going to, you know, roll highs and lows. I'm either going to crush it or I'm going to fail. Or, or legitimately, did you have concerns about that? Oh, I'm the, I'm the warrior. So I had, <laughs> I had <laughs> legitimate life. concerns. Yeah. It, was, it was the scraping together pennies to buy a pizza on Friday night. Kind yeah. Of. Mm. So. Yeah. yeah. The big day night was a Domino's pizza. In the VHS movie. <laughs> right. If you're really going to splurge, you get two movies, right? <laughs> so what was, I mean, so you said, Scott, you know, those first five years are hard. What makes it so hard? Just the cash flow scraping by kind of deal, trying to get the production in the door, new patients, that sort of thing? Yeah. And like I said, at that time, we hadn't figured out systems. So we were doing, trying this and that. And, you know, we did like a year of the coupon dentistry, that was stupid. Never would do that again. Um, just figuring it out. We, at the time, I mean, I, I grew up in family businesses, had a little bit of business sense about me, but 
nothing like running a dental practice. And um, we were found a, a good accountant that literally held my hand for, for many years. And, and I mean, we still use him today, but he taught me so much about finances and, and just being frugal and trying to get out of debt, trying not to get so far underneath your debt that you can't live. Yeah. That's another one of those moments, you know, finding the right person, the right who is what we say that can kind of help you right. as you're trying to learn this. Because you're right. We don't, you don't learn this in school. We didn't learn how to run a business in school either. And everybody kind of learns in their own, own manner. So tell me, when you said systems and process, I think that's probably worth stopping, Scott, and unpacking that. It sounds like that was almost a aha moment for you. At some point, you realized that you were kind of capped out or what made you decide to really invest time and energy into systems and processes? I guess when I got really serious about it, it was not that many years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I don't remember the exact name of the book, but it was one of the Disney books and how they do all their systems and everything. And that was kind of that aha moment for me of, you know, as we're growing and we were adding so many staff members and that's always the biggest challenge in running the business was dealing with the staff and kind of using their model of everything we do, we're all going to do it the same way, not yeah. to be scripted by any means, but we're going to have systems in place so we know what we do when this happens. And yeah, so how'd you jump in and start getting that all together? I mean, how, how did you like figure out what systems to document, who did it, and that sort of thing. I actually asked the staff to, to do most of it. Give me, you sit down and write down what you do every day. Walk me through a day. And then we would take that list and just slowly, it took years to develop it, but slowly tell me, okay, if you're going to make confirmation calls, tell me how you make those calls. Mm. Let's write this down so that if I hire someone in the future, we're going to tell her how to do that and, you know, just breaking it piece by piece. So when you look at that, let's go back to when you first rolled this out with your team that you had in place. What was their mentality? How'd they look at that? They thought I was crazy, I'm sure. Yeah, probably <laughs> like almost resented the extra work, right? They yeah. probably thought it was a pain. Yeah. yeah, but in hindsight, I think they all appreciate it. Now, as I still have team members who've been there 28, 29 years, wow. and when somebody comes in, they're the first one to hand up our book and say, here's pictures of how we do a tray setup. Yeah. Memorize. And I'm it. sure that's constantly evolving, right? Yeah. You're constantly doing tweaks to it, making it more efficient right. and that sort of thing. Exactly. Because, you know, all of our computer systems change through the years and, you know, now we've got everything automated with those confirmation calls and, you know, stuff, stuff like that. You have to, it's a constant change. So when you kind of think through that process, it, it sounds like that you started it, it was a lot of, of collaboration, but it didn't happen overnight, Kelly. It sounds oh, like what you're saying. I mean, how long would you say was a reasonable time where you felt like you had a functional tool for your systems and processes that you could scale off of? I'd say it took me a couple of years to completely yeah. build it out. Yeah, it's like a physical manual you have. Everybody has one or you- It's, yeah. it's in a, a binder. So, yeah, it's, so it's 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 to manage the process, right? If somebody's right. not doing the process, then just point back to this is how we do things, I guess. Exactly. And it's, you know, you talk a lot about trying to teach people to do things, trying to train and onboard. That's the best onboarding tool there is. And you yeah. can walk away feeling like you did your job. You taught them. You gave them the tools to learn their job. Now, whether they learn it or not, that's on them. So... You, you've got to go back and, and refer to that and say, you know, I gave you this. This is how we expect it to be done. I'm seeing you do it this way now. Do we need to change something in our system? Have you got a better way or do we need to keep doing it this way? And it's just have to hold them accountable, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, I love the way that you guys kind of built this structure out. So let, let's kind of put a, uh, a line in sand and say, after those two years, we had systems and processes. Kind of walk us through what was the effect of that? How, how did that look on the day-to-day -day practice? Scott, you might kind of jump in. I mean, what, what changed once you had those in place? 
we became a lot more efficient. Yeah. Numbers went, they took off. Mm -hmm. Why did the numbers change so much, do you think? Just, just straight efficiency? Accountability. Yeah, mm. accountability. Yeah. Accountability is everything, right? It is. It's, you have to hold people's feet to the fire. And I think that building out those structures where that is just part of who you are, that, that you hire, you know, accountable people and, and you have roles and structure and they, they do good work that naturally will translate to the, uh, to the bottom line, to your point, Scott. So it, as far as team engagement and team mentality, how, how did they take it? Cause you know, obviously that sounds, you know, some people are gonna look at that and say, well, my goodness, that sounds, you know, like, a tough environment, but how, how did the team members, how, how did they like that, that structure? I think they appreciate it. Yeah. They, they appreciate knowing where they stand and knowing what they need to, to do. It, you don't ever want to just turn someone loose and, you know, throw them into that fire. They like guidance. They, yeah. I really think in the, in the long run, yes, it was, it was a lot of work to put it together and it was a lot of work on them. But I think all of them would tell you today that it was a good thing. So through that process, did you lose any team members who looked at it and said, that's not what I want? No. 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 That's, that's incredible. They'll, if one of them's not doing what they ought to be doing, they'll either get them, the team themselves will get them in shape or run them off. Mm. Yeah, see, that, that to me is a, a symbol of what you guys have, have built there. Because typically you would think, through that kind of process, you might lose people. And I would say to people who are kind of moving from a system where everybody does their own thing to more structure, that if you don't have those right team members, you could expect potentially for there to be some attrition of staff. And that's okay, because those are probably staff that weren't bought in. In your situation, it sounds like you had the right team members. They just needed some systems and structure, it sounds like. Yeah, we had have always had great team members and been very fortunate not to have a lot of turnover. We've added a lot of staff through the years. Um, I think we have 13 besides the two of us now. <clears throat> so it becomes more challenging, but one of the things that you can attribute success to is your staff. Mm. I mean, they, don't, they don't come to that office to see me. They come to see these ladies that they have grown to love over the years. and. Somebody told me a long time ago when you're hiring, which I think all of us will agree that it's one of the most difficult jobs that we have. But when you're hiring, hire the person, not the skill set. And don't hire someone that you wouldn't want to go out to dinner with. Somebody told me that years ago, and I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but absolutely the truest thing. So I try to hire good people who have the same philosophy, caring, you know, people person, and, and the rest kind of works itself out. So let's, I want to dive into that. Like, how, how do you keep those good people? But let's, let's kind of set this a little bit. So you started at 150,000, three, three full-time people, including your, and then, and then you guys, year seven, you did systems and processes, got that dialed in, took a couple of years, year nine, you looked at, at buying a piece of ground and building. What did the team, what, what did the collections look like around year nine-ish? And then what was, what did the team look like? What did the team consist of? How many people should have kind of gauge where you're at? Let's see. I can tell you because I have it laying here. I love this. I love this. <laughs> the numbers. That's the numbers. We're vibing on this numbers thing. I like I my numbers. I'll she really you. wants to be an accountant. I do. That's my <laughs> next job. Absolutely. We're hiring. We're always hiring. That's right. So, when we moved into our new office, it was January of 98. So the year prior, we had collected around 500. Yeah. And then um, it went up by, from that point on, it went up by 150 to 200 every year. Every yeah, year. so you just had consistent growth upon growth. And I'm guessing, looking mm -hmm. back, would you attribute that to the changes you made as far as the, the systems and processes and standardizing procedures? I think a lot of that, um, probably the hardest decision we ever made was to build that building and do that. That was kind of a leap of faith in yeah. and of itself, but the best decision because it gave us room to grow. We mm -hmm. would have been stifled where we were. 
So were you just feeling a, a capacity issue or okay. what, did you want a location change or what was the mindset? Uh, Both. We were in the older part of town and one of the original like two strip centers ever built. Okay. So it was kind of run down and out of the way. So now we're in the best part of the area and much bigger practice. How far than... away? How far away did you move? How many miles? Two miles, maybe, maybe two miles. Mm -hmm. All right. So kind of thinking forward into, again, trying to help people who are maybe a little bit further behind you in their journey in today's environment, guys, would you look at that any differently as far as as capacity and building or, you know, going out and trying to find a piece of property that will support the practice you want? How, how would you how do you think you would look at it today? Well, if I was going to build a practice, I would never build it for what I need. I would build it for what I want. Explain that, uh, Scott. Kind of unpack that a little bit. Because if you think you're going to grow and you want to grow, I'm not going to buy a whole other building or another piece of land, build a whole other office and start over again. So when we, we had four operatories in the little place we were at. Yeah. Now we have eight. Honestly, we, we, we didn't build big enough. We couldn't use 10. Mm. Yeah. You guys really doubled then. I think a lot of people, if you talk about younger dentists coming out of school, trying to make that decision. Um, one thing, you know, a few years ago when corporate dentistry kind of came to the scene, that was a scary moment for all of us, even those of us who have been in business for a while. And I'm sure that weighs on their minds is can I still be successful being a mom and pop startup like we did yeah. in this corporate environment? I think that's got to be a, a, a thought that's in the back of their mind. But I just honestly believe that there is still a place for that person, for that individual dentist to go. You don't, you've got to start small, you've got to scale. But when, when that thought is in the back of your mind that you are ready to grow, when you see the numbers, you've got to watch the numbers. When you see those numbers and you're ready to grow, do it. Don't wait. Yeah. So when you, when you moved, when you, when you got your new piece of ground and, and built, what was the, I mean, I know you had a capacity issue, so that, you know, gave you more capacity to do more production. What was your client's reaction? What was your team member's reaction? How did that, how did that look? The patient's. The patients were excited for it too. They liked going to the new shiny office. It yeah. wasn't like I said, it wasn't but mile and a half, two miles. So it wasn't like they had to go out of their way. So mm -hmm. I think we saw, if I remember correctly, we saw a big increase in referrals because people, I guess they were more proud of the building they were walking into at that point mm -hmm. rather than saying, you know, I'm going to the little strip center down here to this dentist now i'm going to fisher family dentistry you know on the yeah main road it's a marketing play right yeah that new office up marketing for sure so i'm guessing that kind of as you're moving forward through the journey and, and now you're seeing those probably double digit type growths almost every single year um it probably didn't take long to to get comfortable with the decision to to move into the new location and and Maybe at that point, Kelly, you start feeling a little bit better about, hey, we are going to make it. We are going to survive. I'm guessing at this point, you're looking at your practice just a little differently than you did in those early years. Definitely. It's um, very scary to make the move, but I could tell you a month into the move, I said it was the best decision we ever made. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there was a comfort zone there again. So talk, dive a little bit on the team members. I want to go back to what you guys said regarding Team members are everything. You're so fortunate to have the team members you have. How do you guys get those team members and keep those team members? I'm going to let you pat yourselves on the back here big time. Yeah. What do you guys do to keep those people there? Because I, I agree with you. Team members are everything. They're, they're, they're the business run. We give them a good environment to work in. We are, you know, we're the kind of people, what you see is what you get. If, you know, we're friends with them. But yet we know to keep that distance and, you know, somebody's got to be the authoritative figure. But, but at the same time, you, you care about them. You care about their families. Um, don't come in and try to just be superior to everyone there. They are your family. Um, 
and I think that's the biggest thing that has kept them there. They they feel that they're appreciated and wanted, and I tell them every single day that they're the reason those patients are there, not me. Mm. Anybody can do what I do, but it takes a special person to love on those people and and make them want to come back. We're more their parent than their boss. We try to. We just don't try to hound them too much. You got to yeah. keep them, give them guidance, and you got to be their parent sometimes when it's time to be their parent or their boss. But for the most part, they run the place. We don't run it. Yeah. Mm. See, I absolutely love that. That's kind of the, uh, you know, Mike Abernathy staff-led type practices. We learned a lot from built him. Up something. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what he teaches, and that, and we believe that. And that's kind of that culture that that permeates. And, and what's interesting is, is you said it earlier, is that your people who are there become kind of the guardians of the culture. In addition to yourselves, when people come in uh, to interview, they're, if they're not the right fit, your people, it feels like, are kind of betting them against your, your values and who you are and, and what you're trying to do. And if they're not the right fit, they, they move them, may move them out. And that doesn't happen overnight. I mean, that's something that I'm guessing you were very intentional over time, just trying to build that that type of environment for your team to, to be able to make those kind of decisions. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, you know, they the patients come for the the women who work there. They're not really coming for us for the biggest part. Yeah. You call them, they call on the phone and we have to ask, ask them, do you want to see the man or the woman? They don't even know who we are. <laughs> right, exactly. And you're you're probably just fine with that, I'm guessing. Yeah, too. That's, that, that's the annuity work. And so, <laughs> but that that does, I mean, that in today's environment, and again, we won't timestamp this too much, but we've gone through what you probably have heard a lot of younger doctors and other doctors say is a staffing crisis. They're having trouble finding good people, uh, good associates, good hygienists. Did you guys experience that at all? Have you had struggles with that? We did lose a lot of staff after COVID. Yeah. I think we lost six people mm. at that time. So I will tell you this past 18 months has been a little trying in our yeah. office. Um, but I, I do go by that old saying, the slow to hire. Yeah. I don't just bring a warm body in there. We, and we all talk about it openly, the staff. And, you know, they always interview whomever I interview. Um, and if we don't like them, we don't hire it. We know we're all going to work a little bit harder in the meantime, but we know it'll be worth it to get the right person. So dive a little deeper on that. You guys aren't the only ones interviewing that prospective new uh, team. We, right? we give them a pool and we always make them come in to, you know, at least a half a day to a day of shadowing, working with mm -hmm. the office, see if they like us and we like them. Yeah. And the, the women in the office will find out about them in a hurry. They'll let you know if it's a good or bad fit. Way more than, because if we're interviewing them, they can say and do whatever they want. And if we think, yeah, that sounds good. But in reality, that's not necessarily what's going to so, happen. Sounds like you have a pretty laid out process for this, right? Yeah. Onboarding. I, just, I start with just phone interviews and, you know, you can tell a lot by that. Um, social media has come into play on that. Yeah. I weed them out through that too. If I look at their pictures and not, I don't mean beauty in their pictures, but their lifestyle yeah. in their picture. Sure. You know, I know that's not the kind of person I want in my, yeah. my environment. So uh, it, there, it is a process, but I truly believe it, it's more important to have a personality that will fit with everyone's than that skill set because we've developed the tools to teach them the skill set. So Kelly, that's that. me is so key. And, and it's so hard to, when you said hire slow in a, in a good job market for employers, that's super easy to do. You yeah. Know, you can be patient and let more applicants come in because you know, they're going to in today's environment that has to take, that takes a lot of discipline, right? Because we do, we honestly hear with, with clients, we just need a warm body. We just need a warm body. So tell us, how would you speak to somebody who has that mentality? Well, I actually just did it. I just hired another administrative person 
and went through the interview process. And one of the things that I always, in my ads I run or anything on social media, I make mention of the fact that we are a locally owned, non-corporate environment. I mentioned the work environment in there. Mm -hmm. So this past, uh, it was probably four or five months ago now that I got, I think I had 60 applicants. Oh my all goodness. Experience. Wow. And in this environment, you would not think that at all. No. We did that down to probably the top 10, went through the interview process, like Scott said, had them come into the office for a few hours just to let everybody see him. We all agreed on one person that we thought was the right person. Um, then I started checking references and all that didn't check out so well. Hmm. So I met with the team again and said, okay, go. We can take a chance on this, but I know this guy that she used to work for pretty well, and I don't think he would steer me wrong. And they're like, nope, don't do it. Don't do it. We're okay. We'll make it. We're okay. Yeah. And then we just kind of let it, let it lie. And then um, I always ask them to think of people in their circles that are looking for a career change or someone they've worked with in another office some a, a rock star basically find me that rock star mm -hmm. and that happened this time a lady that works in the office came to me and said I worked with this lady about 12 years ago and their office just got bought by corporate she wants out what do you think brought her in everybody fell in love with her instantly mm -hmm. hired her the next day yeah so you're talking about you ask your existing team members for referrals yes. if you will yes. a lot of yeah. And do, that, you in, do you incentivize where my best them? Hires come from because they 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 got connections in other offices and know what's going on. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a key thing. I get we get asked that question a lot, you know, from clients, etc. Like, hey, or you know, how looking for somebody? What do you think is the best thing? Indeed, ZipRecruiter, all this stuff. And it's like, have you asked your team yet first? Mm -hmm. Because you're right, like you said, Scott. They know individuals in the area that they're connected with that might not be at a good place now, right? Mm -hmm. And once they hear about your culture, your environment, they're like, that sounds like a pretty cool deal. Let's go See, check that we out. Just, we hit on two major takeaways, I think, exactly what you said. And they both are tied to your team. Is is number one, you, you brought your team into the initial discussion. And so by that, they understand what the staffing is. They feel it. They feel the capacity issues. But they're part of that discussion. You bring them in early enough where they have that that buy-in of they care, they, they value my opinion enough to at least bring me into this conversation. And so you brought them in and together you guys made a decision and maybe that's not the right hire. So then you move on. And then the second key takeaway, just like you said, Jared, is talk to your team members. You talk to your team members and they found an all-star that was sitting on the sideline that has a warm introduction into a firm that will have a much better idea of what they're getting into, what kind of culture they're moving into, what kind of values. So to me, those are two key takeaways about bringing your staff into the crisis, the hiring uh, situation you have. Those, those two are invaluable. Yeah, that's what you said. It's the staff led and you guys being vulnerable enough to ask the staff, you know, hey, what's yeah. your opinion? You know, feedback. That's, that's what really lets the practice take off. Well, if you just hire them yourself and throw them into the pool of, existing employees and there's not a fit you've got a lot of trouble on your hands a no lot doubt. of trouble yeah you and may end up the only one working is the one that should have been gone <laughs> that's right no you say that scott that's exactly what happens and, and i think that's a runaway culture too sometimes where people let things you know when when they we call it the ostrich you stick your head in the sand and let hope all these problems go away well they tend to all the good problems go, or the good people go away, and the bad problems are ones that are left. You're exactly right, and we see it, and that's something that can torpedo a practice quicker than anything. Is when your good people who are bought into where, who you are and where you're going go, and you're stuck with the people who aren't who aren't the right fits. That that's a great point too. Yeah. So hit on a little bit. So we're at year nine. You jumped in, bought the land, built the building, got to eight ops. And then let, let's kind of shoot forward to today. Let's hit the year today. So that was year nine. Where are you guys at? What's 2021? What year is that? 2021 is best ever year. Mm. Um, we just added, like I said, that other staff member. So there are 13 staff members plus Scott and I at this point. Um, four full-time hygienists. Um, 
and then the two of us and by saying we could use a little more room we're each kind of stifled to to two rooms a piece because we work mostly the same hours we we do a little expanded schedule in there um one we have two shifts basically one comes 7 30 the other shift is um, nine to five so we've got overlap in the middle of the day there's no um, I mean, the office is open that entire time. Lunches are by shifts, so that we never really close during the day. But but it's tight to to run just the two of us with two operatories apiece during that middle of the day. That's tough. But you know we're not at the point in our career where we're going to build a new building or anything. You know it's time to it's time to start thinking about exit strategy at this point. So um, dollar wise, that. go ahead. Oh no, no, please go ahead, Kelly. Um, dollar wise, we will probably hit around three million this year. Boom. So that's that's. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to attribute it to, honestly. This year, well, that's that's what I was going to ask. I mean, you go from year nine at five hundred k to a degree up to three million of collections. Now that's another, say, twenty years. It's just great, consistent, steady, steady growth. I mean, you said you don't know what to attribute to, but if you were to think of something, what would you attribute that to? I mean, that's just, it's great growth where a lot of people would kind of, you know, get to just kind of stall out to a degree around a certain point, but you just keep going. I think you have to, in the early years, you, you just have to establish a personality for your practice. And our personality for our practice was, community involved. From the get-go, we got involved in different civic organizations, helping out the schools. Scott used to coach a girls softball team, and he could tell you a whole nother story <laughs> on that one. But, you know, just being involved, being out there, getting your face out in public. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't go to work and then go home and shut the door and your neighbors don't know you and your town doesn't know you. Be a part of that community. And then it will come. People respect you. They want to come see you. You you build those relationships with those people. And like Scott said in the very beginning, that part of us becoming the hygienist, we honestly have still carried that through to today because I want to get to know my people. I don't yep. want to do a, a five-minute check and I can't remember your name when you come in next time. I want to get to know them. So every single patient, new patient that comes through our office comes through us first. You do the first hygiene appointment. You do the first hygiene appointment with them. Wow. Now, is that, is that a productive hour that we spend with we them? We can make no. a lot more money not doing it. Well, maybe it's not productive. productive. in the long run. It's, it's a long game, no doubt right. about it. I mean, that's that growth. That's how you kind of get there. And you get back to Jared, people, we do, we see people plateau. There's usually kind of this revenue threshold that people kind of plateau at. And a lot of times it is a very transactional service with, yeah. with people and the attrition rate as a result tends to be very high. And I'm guessing in your side, we have new patient growth and probably not as much attrition because you do take the time to get to know those patients in that way. And we honestly could have more new patient growth than we can because we work on a, a block scheduling system. So we yeah. limit the number of new patients at this point who can come in. But I feel like we we get good new patients. We get most, yeah. you know, everybody gets the Google referrals and everything today. But probably half of our referrals each month are from existing patients still. Yeah. And, you know, that means a lot when they care enough to send their friends. So along along the way to get to where you are now, have you, have you brought in an additional doctor associate or is it just still you two as the doctors? Well, you have? Yeah, ever cross your mind or are you guys it like, does. no, I got this. With the spice we've got, we can't figure out how to do it yet. Mm. <laughs> yeah, to your point about building out what you want, not necessarily what you think you need at that point. So so what's awesome there, guys, is, is you have more than 10 x you know, to where you are now. 20 X. Um, yeah, math, exactly. If you, do, if you do the math. Um, 
so we've kind of hit on all the high points, but but let's let's kind of get real here. And let's just say if you were to look back, what are some of the things that you would say you would have done differently or something that, that besides the building, Scott, we kind of hit on that maybe your capacity issues are, are related to a decision that was made at the time. But any other tips or tricks that you would say that you learned the hard way that could help some of these young dentists out who are listening today? Oh, I would say just procedure-wise, do the things that you're good at, do the things that you love, don't get stuck in a rut of doing things that you have to do every day, mm. um, do it because you love it, Yeah. and do it because you're good at it, and if there's somebody else out there who can do it better than you, then refer it out, Yeah. and just always treat people right, as far as doing things differently, you know, yeah, there's always something you could do differently. You made a bad hire here or there, but overall, I guess maybe I would have done those systems a lot sooner. Than there you go. Yeah, that that would have saved a lot of a lot of trouble in the early years. But honestly, at that point, I'm not sure I knew enough to put yeah. together good systems. Yeah, we had a total of three hours of business classes in dental school, and I don't yeah. think that's changed in the intervening <laughs> years. As I mean, it's yeah. still the same thing. No. And so we, what, we what would you what would you want to have known out of business school regarding business? I mean, uh, well, everything I, or like I, when you're in dental school or medical school or any specialty school like that, you really want to get into it because you want to do that kind of work and help people. Yeah. What you never really think about in the back of your mind is no matter what it is, when it all comes down to it, it's just a business. And you got to treat it like a business or you're not going to help a lot of people because yeah. nobody's going to come see you to help. Mm -hmm. So you got to figure that out. I guess kind of your all's line of work. I wish I had known more of the accounting end yeah. of it. Um, that's, that's one thing that would have helped a whole lot in the beginning. To this day, I still do most of my own bookkeeping work just because I enjoy that part of it. Sure. But I also think you've got to keep a close eye on your numbers. And if that's gonna dictate what you do, I see so many people that don't have any idea where their money's going. Yeah. I can account for every single penny. And that's, you know, I work off of a budget and um, I think that's an important thing for a young dog to, to do right off the bat. So you're saying let those numbers dictate your decisions. Yeah. As opposed to gut. Yeah. So, so Kelly, let me ask you a question on that real quick, because I love the example you gave. And this may seem kind of self-serving. I don't know what intended to, but the fact that you connected up with an advisor who kind of changed your perspective. Did, did you have a bent towards numbers before that? Or did that kind of come once you understood more what it meant? That he, he, you know, he kind of helped you pull it together. I've always been a numbers person. Yeah. Um, very lived very frugally all my life and I just I guess I never wanted to get above my means I, yeah you know, there's nothing worse to me than trying to dig yourself out of a hole and yeah. um, I guess that's why I let that uh, lead me all the way yeah mm -hmm. so what's next guys I mean you're here 2021 <laughs> what's next we're, we're great practice to great location day. What's that? We're starting to explore the next. Um, yeah. We're going to get another doctor. We just got to figure out how to make it work. I've tried to yeah. fire him. He won't leave. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> hey, that's that's a pretty good problem to have been, right? I mean, that tells me your head's still in the game, Scott. You still, yeah. you know, still enjoy it if, if you're not quite ready to hang up. And that's, to me, guys, I think that's telling of what you guys have built because we hear stories of people who cannot wait to get away from the chair as soon as possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it is possible to have a good thriving, growing practice where you still do enjoy going in to work. And then that gives you a lot of flexibility. You don't, you're not beholden to one particular exit strategy or other. You can kind of dictate how that works. I think that's, that's a great sign. In my it's opinion. a great point, Bill, that you just brought up because you guys have been doing dentistry, practicing dentistry for 30 years, right? Yep. And you 32 yeah. years and you still love doing dentistry, right? Yes. So what, what advice would you give to somebody out there 
that that is let's say they're younger in their career you know years one through ten or whatever maybe ten years in like what do they need to start be thinking about doing now in order to keep that love of dentistry for 32 years like you guys and not burn themselves out I think it is what I said earlier, just doing the procedures that you love, the people mm. that you like. Um, you know, in hindsight, there's lots of patients I probably should have fired through the years because they increased my stress level and I, I just couldn't do that. Um, surround yourself with good people and, and it makes the, the, the job more enjoyable. Um, that's not to say that, you know, I'm not at the point in my life where I'd like to cut back a little bit, but it's, it's a very physically demanding job as well. So it's, I just think surrounding yourself with good people, good patients, good staff, that, that's, that makes your work life good. A great takeaway. Yeah, that's dynamite. You guys have created something absolutely awesome. And at the beginning, I said, 10x i'm a numbers guy I totally botched it it's 20 you 20x your practice thank you, thank you. i mean where you guys are at now i mean you guys have done just awesome things and, and the, the cool thing is is you you've created this practice right there in that town that is helping so many other people out right you've got a great team that you're employing and making their life better all the patients that you guys are serving that they love coming to you and so I'm going to say this, this little practice you guys bought in 1990, I believe is what you said. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Did you ever think you'd be where you're at now from Gosh, 1990? Yeah. That's awesome. Just trying to survive for those first five years, right? Yeah. Are you guys having Domino's pizza tonight? <laughs> Friday no. night. Yeah. No, it's Friday night. <laughs> night. Can, you, can you get a VHS these days? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, guys, I appreciate you having us on or having you coming on. We, um, Thank you. we always kind of end on one question that we like to ask the Dental Moment podcast here. So what is one thing you guys would, would tell a, a dental practice owner out there right now, what they need to be thinking about or doing to create momentum in their practice? Get your staff invested and make systems so that they know what they're supposed to do and how to do it and then let them take over. Staff led, yeah. What about you, Kelly? Don't hinder them. Yeah. I would say just do the right thing. Treat people right. Don't oversell. Just do the right thing, and it will come to you. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, guys, I appreciate it. you. Guys, want to go check them out? FisherFamilyDentistry.com. Awesome website. Um, just super awesome people too. And guys, I appreciate you taking time of your day. I didn't know you were down there on the beach, but I appreciate you hanging out. Anytime you want some accountants to come down, let us know. We'll be down in the heartbeat. You can come anytime. There you go. <laughs> you guys, I appreciate it. You guys out there, if you guys uh, listen to this podcast episode again, like I say all the time, just amazing content here from these individuals. Share it with somebody who you think would benefit. Subscribe to the podcast. And we always ask, leave us a rating, give us a review. We just love getting the stories just like this out to you guys. So something here, you know, maybe there's a gold nugget you can take away. Um, but Scott, Kelly, appreciate you, Bill. Appreciate you as always, my friend. Till next time, you guys out there, have a great day. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thanks.